The Gospel According to Mark, the ninth chapter. I'm going to begin reading at the 14th verse, ESV. It says, and when they came to the disciples, they saw a crowd, a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered, teacher, I brought my son to you. For he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rode about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything. But prayer. Let's pray. Lord God, I ask for you to equip me to be able to preach the word today, to be able to expound upon the Holy Scriptures. Father, I ask for hearts, minds to be open. I pray that hindrances and stumbling blocks and demonic distractions would be removed so that nothing prevents your word from falling on good ground. God, I pray that you would provide insight for your sheep today, and I pray that you would provide a strategic game plan for them, and I pray that you would help them to envision themselves free from demonic oppression, and we ask it all that your son may be glorified. In his name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. You can take a seat. So one of the hot topics uh, that has been debated in the Christian world, whether local church level, whether on the academic level, has to do with the subject of demon possession. Demon possession. You see a lot of, even in the secular world, a lot of things on TV and paranormal 
uh, reality shows and things of that sort. And Mark mentioned earlier the documentary with Jeffrey Dahmer, which many people would describe him as being demon-possessed. And we hear that, that phrase thrown around a lot, but in the Christian world, there's a debate over the term demon-possession. And here's why. Uh, there are several words in Greek that mean possession. There's several different words that are synonyms, and they all mean possession. So that means that the biblical authors who wrote the New Testament in Greek, they had multiple options to communicate the word possession. But the word that they used in Greek that we translate as demon possession is not possession. In other words, that's not what the word means. They didn't use any of the multiple variety of options that they have to communicate possession. They didn't use any of those words when they spoke about demons. This means that when we read our New Testament and we see the term and such and such was demon possessed. It's not the best way to translate the Greek word because it gives a uh, a misinformed idea. What Because if it means demon possession, then it means that anybody who's dealing with this demonic activity must be under the ownership of a demon. But if that's what. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wanted to communicate, they would have used one of those Greek words that actually mean possession, but that's not what it means. So this, uh, uh, what we call a lexical issue, because it deals with the original language, it has led a lot of theologians pretty much unanimously to opt for a better word that more accurately explains what the New Testament writers were talking about. The Greek word that they use does not mean demon possession. What it means is demonization, to be demonized. Everybody with me? What does it mean to be demonized? To be demonized means to come up under the power, influence, or might I even say control of a demonic force. It is to be held captive. It is to be put in some form of bondage by a demonic entity. That is what the New Testament means when it uses the term demonization or to be demonized. Now, When I use that definition, you may say to yourself, that just made this thing very broad. (laughs) If you say demon possession, then I know what to think. I just think of the movie The Exorcist, you know, contorting my body in weird ways that it shouldn't twist. Face becoming disfigured, deep voice coming out of my vocal cords, superhuman strength. When you say demon possession, I can put that in a category. But when you say demonization, you've made it so broad. Well, that includes a lot of things that would qualify. That's exactly, I believe, why the New Testament authors use that word. Because this tells us that there are different degrees of demonization. There are different levels to it. This means you can have one person who's demonized, and you can have another person who's demonized, and the manifestation of that demon can take on totally different symptoms. So this leads us to the next question. (laughs) It's about to get real uncomfortable. (laughs) The great debate in the academic world is can a Christian be demonized? If you ask one group, the answer is an immediate, unequivocal, (laughs) categorical, Explicit, no. 
They would argue my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. I was bought with a price. Satan can't dwell in the same place as the spirit of God. You can't have a demonic spirit and the spirit of God living in the same place or even in the same sphere. So the answer is an obvious no. They would go further and they would say nowhere in the New Testament does God command Christians to cast out or pray over demons. God only gave that authority to Jesus and his apostles. Therefore, if we want to deal with demons, then we only got to deal with it in the realm of unbelievers. And all we got to do is preach the gospel and the demons will leave automatically. That's one view by very smart people who got a lot of letters behind their name. (laughs) Then you have another view that says, without a doubt, yes, a Christian can be demonized. In fact, they would go a step further and they would say, the vast majority of the struggles we have with sin is due to a demon. Therefore, whenever somebody comes into the local church and they're struggling with sin, They're asked to come to deliverance ministry and get the demon cast out of them. What this view ultimately does is it takes all the responsibility off the believer to yield to the word of God, to make practical, wise choices according to the power that God has granted them. And it puts all the blame on a demon so that whenever I'm acting out, I could just say the devil made me do it. But there's a third view. Always keep your eye open for the third view. (laughs) The third view would say, if our definition of demonization is to come up under the power, influence, control, or captivity of a demonic force, the answer is yes. But if our definition of demonization is to come up under the ownership of a demonic force where I have lost all my ability to choose right and wrong, then the answer is no. The third view is the view that I hold. And I want to give you some biblical data, some biblical proof to establish this. I don't just want to state it as fact. I want to show you where I'm getting this from. Earlier, I made reference to demonization taking on different manifestations. Doesn't always look the same in everybody. I want to unpack that a little further, and we're going to get into some scripture. You might have one individual who's demonized, and they are filled with deceit. They are habitual liars. Growing up, we used to call them cappers. <laughs> or Mr. Me Too's, you know, for my for my people who's born in the 80s. Y'all know what that means. Every time somebody got a story, oh me too. Lying. In some cases, a person can be demonized and it manifests itself in constant deception on purpose. Then you have another person who's demonized. And they're just hyper fearful, scared to leave the house, scared to drive a car, might get into an accident, scared when the phone rings, something might be bad news, scared to be around people, too social, uncomfortable, nervous, sweaty. We assume that there's always a natural explanation to this stuff. 
But what I'm arguing today is that much of this is due to a believer being demonized. Now, there are many more examples I can give, but I want to get right to the scripture. I want us to take a look at the book of Ephesians, the fourth chapter. If we can get that slide up there, Chantrice, from the Ephesians, the fourth chapter. Now, this, this verse that I'm about to share is, this is the... Ah, how can I say it? This is the launching pad for my thesis that a Christian can be demonized. Paul says, ESV, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. He says, there's an anger that is permitted by God. We call it a righteous indignation. But he says, do not sin in your anger, which means that there's a way and there's a season for anger, depending on the circumstance. But there's also a means by which you can be sinning in your anger. When you're on the freeway and the person cut you off and you say a word or have a thought, that's called sinning in your anger. Paul says, don't do that. And he says, don't let the sun go down on it, which means before this day is over with, you better resolve this anger that you have because it might turn into some type of resentment. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Now look at his conclusion. And give no opportunity to the devil. Now when we read that in English, like, all right, cool. Just don't get a devil a chance to mess with you. Then we go on to the next verse. <laughs> well, that word opportunity has a Greek definition that means a whole lot more than just opportunity. I copied and pasted some definitions from my Greek lexicon of my Bible software. I want you to see this for yourself. If we can get the next slide. Look at what the definition says. Now, read this carefully. An area of any size. Specified as a place of habitation. An inhabited geographical area. An inhabited structure, space, place, or building. A portion of a larger area, place, or location. Next slide, please. Regions, districts, an abode, a place, a room to live, stay, and sit. And then the very last definition, which is the least likely of all possibilities, a favorable circumstance for doing something, possibility, opportunity, chance. The Greek word is tapos. What does all those definitions except the last one have in common? geographical, regional, spatial. That Greek word is used close to a hundred times in the New Testament. Almost every time, I believe, except for four or five, it means a spatial location. When Paul says <laughs> in Ephesians 4, do not give the devil a tapas, what he's saying is, do not give him 
a place to live, a place to sit, a place to reside, a place to inhabit. He's not just talking about some random general chance. He's saying, don't let him in your space. Come on, B. That's only unbelievers. The book of Ephesians is not written to unbelievers. It's written to Holy Spirit indwelt believers in Christ. And Paul is warning them. Don't let him in. He's only warning them because he knows it's a possibility it could happen. Why am I trying to bring all of this up? Because we about to walk through Mark chapter nine and we about to talk about demons. If I don't create this foundation, a a theological basis for the Christian being demonized, here's what will happen. We'll read Mark nine and we'll say, oh, thank God. I ain't got to worry about none of this stuff. I ain't got to worry about demons. Yeah, they can maybe tempt me or whatever, but I ain't got to worry about coming under no, no power. I want to read this stuff so that you'll see that we deceiving ourselves if we think that. Different levels. I'm not saying you lose your self-will. Doesn't always have to manifest itself the same way. But if you in this room and you got the Holy Spirit inside of you, there is potential. For you to be demonized. But Brian, do we have any biblical examples of that? Acts chapter 5. Early church convened together. The apostles said, I want everybody, all the rich folks, sell your stuff, your property, bring the proceeds, lay it at the apostles' feet so that no poor people are in the midst of the church. There should be no lack so he says, we're going to make sure what, what they say in New Jack City, we all we got. <laughs> like, we're going to make sure everybody eating. Married couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira contrived this idea to pretend like they sold the stuff, but they would keep a portion of the money for themselves instead of laying it all at the apostles' feet. We're not told how long it went on, but it was happening. When Peter finds this out through the discernment of the Holy Spirit, he pulls up on Ananias and he says this. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Now, these are believers. Nothing in the text says these are unbelievers. This is the early church. Peter says Satan has taken up residency in your heart. And the symptom was greed and lying. James chapter 3, verse 13 through 16, James says, paraphrase, he says, there's a lot of selfish ambition and jealousy among you. And then he says, it's because you've adopted wisdom that's demonic. He's not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to the church. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says, do not become captivated Do not become captivated by men who would deceive you with the elemental spirits of the world. The word elemental spirit speaks of the demonic entities in the atmosphere that was controlling the false doctrine that was deceiving the church. So he says these philosophies that you're getting from men, they're rooted in the demonic. And Paul says, don't become captive by it. 
The word captive means to be in bondage. He's talking to Christians. Last example I'll give. Sometimes a demonic entity can demonize you by causing physical symptoms. Illness. That didn't come from you ate too much Taco Bell. <laughs> I think I got that slide, Shantrice. Luke, the 13th chapter. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman. Now just stop. He's teaching where? Why, why would an unbeliever be there? Sure, an unbeliever can come to the local church. The synagogues was the physical place of, of gathering and worship to hear the word of God expounded upon in Israel. Luke wants us to know where this woman was at. She's in the place of worship. Hint, hint, she's a believer. He was teaching on the, in the synagogues on the Sabbath day, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit. NASB says a spirit of infirmity. For 18 years, she was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. So it says this woman, who so far seems to be a believer, says she had a spirit of infirmity, a disabling spirit that caused her to walk like this. Yeah. Now, of course, somebody walked through the door like that here. We're going to be like, get them some physical therapy, some arthritis medication and an x-ray to see if some broken bones. Jesus says, no, I know what this is. It's a spirit. Verse 12, when Jesus saw her, he called her and said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. Next verse. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. Notice the subtlety. No foaming at the mouth. No screaming and hollering. No going into convulsions. No demon making a scene. The spirit left. And she just stood up. Wow. Different levels of demonization. Don't think the exorcist movie. Don't always look like that. She stands up and she starts glorifying God. Did Jesus ever tell her about God? Where'd she get that from? She was a believer. Verse 14, but the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? Yeah. And not, not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loose from this bond on the Sabbath day. First, he said it was a spirit. Now he says Satan had her what? Bondage, demonization. But here's the henchpin. He called her a daughter of Abraham. He's not talking about our ethnicity, y'all. Because ethnic Jews in John chapter 8, Jesus called children of Satan. A daughter of Abraham is a name that says she was under the covenant relationship with the God of Israel. But had a demon that took residency in her back. Made her walk like this. We can go on and on and on with examples. But I just want to show you and I just want us to be humble to recognize if we're not careful. We have opened up doors for demonization. This is not a fear tactic. Amen. This is why God had Mark come up first, who had no idea I was talking about demons today. 
and talked about the authority that we have in Christ and how that devil is already defeated. That was nothing but God. That wasn't in my notes. God needed Mark to pave the way so that we start there. We coming from a place of victory, not from a place of loss. So whatever I say about demons, it's not to make you tremble. It's to make you stand firm and say the God of Israel lives inside of me. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We are coming from a place of authority and there is bondage in this church. And God sent me here today to let you know that's freedom coming. But we got some things, we got some business we got to take care of. Mark chapter 9, verse 14, Jesus has just been transfigured on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. They saw the glory of Yahweh in his face. The rest of the disciples are down at the foot of the mountain, and they have just gotten to a debate. Verse 14, and when they came back to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And and he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you. For he has a spirit that makes him mute. Peter, James and John was on the mountain with Jesus, right? The other nine disciples got into a dispute with the crowd. And they're arguing with the scribes, the religious leaders. And Jesus is like, hey, what, what, y'all, what happened? We gone for a few hours and y'all down here debating with people. What are y'all arguing about? A man from the crowd steps up and he say, I brought my son to you to get a demon cast out. We didn't see you. So I asked the disciples if they could do it. And they could not do it. So apparently that started an argument most likely where the scribes begin to ridicule the disciples. Oh, I thought y'all was wrong with Jesus. I thought y'all had authority. Don't look like it now, does it? Probably what was going on, this debate has taken place. But the main issue is that this man has a son who has a spirit. He says that the spirit makes him mute. Meaning he can't talk. Verse 18 says, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. As I'm reading this, the first thing that struck me was this. This man's son has one spirit, right? Living inside of him. He has one demon he's dealing with, correct? That one demon gave him a multiplicity of symptoms. The one demon was responsible for his muteness. The demon was responsible for the foaming at the mouth. It was responsible for the convulsions that's throwing him to the ground. And it was responsible for the grinding of his teeth. Later in the text, it's going to say the spirit also made it so he couldn't hear. And the spirit also made it so that he would try to drown himself in the water and burn himself with fire. This means that you can be under the demonization of one entity and it can manifest itself in different areas in your life. Just think about that. You can have one spirit on you. And it ain't just making you jealous. It's making you angry. It's not just making you angry. It's making you lustful. And, and we're sitting here and we like, man, what do I do? I'm reading the Bible. 
I'm in accountability. I'm in counseling. But nothing's changing. It's because there's another enemy that's behind it many times. One demon, multiple manifestations at once. But the big takeaway is this. They brought the demon to the disciples. And they could not cast it out. That's the part of the Bible I like wish wasn't there. I don't want to hear about a demon doing that to somebody. And then the disciples being incapable of dealing with it. That makes me feel very uncomfortable. If you're in the book of Mark, do me a favor. Turn over three chapters to Mark chapter six. Now, just check this out. Verse seven of Mark chapter six says this. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Three chapters later, they can't cast the demon out. This means that as believers, we can have authority over the devil And still be unsuccessful in spiritual warfare. They had authority because Christ gave it to them. But when the gun battle takes place, they're unfruitful. We will assume that if I'm not seeing victory, maybe I'm not saved. Maybe God is not. Bible says I'm supposed to have authority. Maybe I'm not saved. No. The disciples knew Christ face to face, walked with him, saw his miracles, touched him, had conversation with him, and failed in their attempts to wage war against the enemy. How could this be so? Mark alluded to it earlier. You can have authority, but it's useless if you don't know how to use it. God can put a sword in my hand. But if I don't know how to swing that bad boy, ain't nothing getting cut up. They had authority, (laughs) but they failed. Anybody feel like you're failing with the bondages in your life? You tripping over the same thing. We're tripping over the same things over and over and over again. I want you to know, oh, you have authority, but you're not using it right. We're not using it right. Glory to God. He's going to show us how to use it. Verse 19. Jesus' response. And he answered them. Oh, faithless generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Jesus' Jesus's response to the failure of the disciples to deal with this evil spirit was that the generation was faithless. Notice generation. He didn't say the disciples are faithless. 
or just this man is faceless. He said, all y'all. This is a cultural epidemic. The whole culture is filled with unbelief. That is his response to why the lack of success occurred when they tried to do spiritual warfare. Might I add that if that generation was faithless, what would you call our culture today? There used to be a time, look, I'm only 37 years old. There was a time when I was younger where there was a sense of, uh, uh, it's almost like there was a remnant that was larger of believers. Like there was a certain level of experiences I would have. Like if I'm talking to my friend's grandmother, I know she's saying. <laughs> like somebody in my friend's family say. I'm looking at the generation now. You, you hard pressed to find another person that genuinely believes the Bible. Not just says I'm Christian, but really believes the Bible. It's rare. As the scriptures predicted it would be in the last days. Even within the Christian circles, there's a lack of faith. There's even a lack of belief that the demonic is a real thing. So when we even hear me talking about stuff like this, we like, uh, bipolar makes more sense to me. Depressive disorder makes more sense to me. Anxiety disorder makes more sense to me. Um, this mystery sickness that I got it makes more sense to me. The, the chronic migraines make more sense to me. I'm not saying that if you have any of those things, that that automatically means you're being demonized. I'm saying that if you have those things, there's a possibility that you're being demonized. And there's only one way to know. Ask God for insight and to move accordingly. It's a lack of faith. Our culture is faithless. And I believe that's part of the problem why we're seeing so many people in a local church in bondage. Way down. Hypersexed. Can't stop thinking about sex. All day, every day. Living a promiscuous lifestyle as a believer, knowing that it's going to have a negative effect on my physical health. Still feel like you can't stop. But I'm coming to church, coming to Bible study, talking to accountability. But every day, every week, I'm right back in the same pit. I'm right back online. Said I wouldn't go to that website no more. I'm right back day after day after day. Bondage. Look at what happens next. Verse 20. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. <clears throat> Read it carefully. When they brought the boy to Jesus. Look at Mark's words. This is not random. When the spirit saw Jesus. Immediately. It start acting out. When Jesus was brought into the presence of the demonic force, the demonic force immediately showed its ugliness. 
foaming at the mouth, convulsing, falling to the ground. It's like it threw a tantrum the moment it knew Christ was in the room. Question is why? Text doesn't say us, but I believe we could theorize. I believe, Isaac said it, that demon knew what was about to happen to him. They knew who Jesus is. Have you not come to torment us before the time? They know what time it was when they saw him walk in the room. So it's as if the spirit says, let me just give it all I got now. Because he's about to throw me up out of here. Now apply this to our life. Why is it that the closer we get to the presence of Jesus, the day we decide to start fasting and praying, the day we say, I'm going to get up early and I'm going to start my day with the word, not just finish my day with the word. The day we make a decision to walk in holiness and to stay in accountability, all hell breaks loose. Because those demons know when they start getting into the presence of the most high God, we about to be dealt with. So let's throw the whole kitchen sink at them so that they would stop resisting us so that we can stay in a sphere. We be watching TV all night, wide awake. <laughs> ain't dozed off at all. It's 2 a.m. Holy Spirit, like you ain't prayed today. We get on our knees and in three seconds. Every time it happens like that. <laughs> and we think it's just, we, it's so normal we assume that that's nothing. It's just a natural explanation for it. It's not. Look, man, me and my wife have a tradition to pray with each other every day. I'm telling y'all, man, every time we do it, we start yawning. I'm fighting it, or Jody, Jody even works with me in it, man. She don't even be fighting her yawning. It just be coming out. I'll be at least trying to pretend like I'm more holy. <laughs> Sleepy is what? Out of nowhere. Demons recognize what's about to happen. You ever notice that the moment you start walking in authority and in purpose, you start getting bad news. You get sick. Somebody in your family dies. All type of bad stuff start happening. Why is that? I was just chance the way the world go. It's the universe, right? <laughs> it's the universe decided. Demonic forces know what's about to happen. So they do to us what they did to that boy. Different degrees, just because you're not foaming and convulsing, don't mean we're not up under some demonization going on there. Verse 21, one of the deepest parts of the passage. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. Just look at the compassion of Jesus. On the one hand, look at his compassion. And on the other hand, look at how unintimidated he is by what that demon is doing to that boy. Verse 20 says, this demon is going crazy. And showing itself physically. Jesus doesn't panic. He doesn't say, let me just hurry up and fix this. 
He wants more information. How long has this been happening to this boy? I want to know his story. I want to know where this came from before I deal with it. I want to know a little history. Maybe there's a little lesson in there for us. I want to do a little background research before I deal with the reality of what's happening now. Boy's father says, from childhood, which indicates that perhaps this boy is not as young as he once was. The implication is it's been happening for a long time, but it started when he was a kid. Now that messes me up because it shows me that there is no compassion when it comes to the kingdom of darkness. There is no mercy. There is no love. There is pure evil and hatred for God's creation. To such a degree where even little children are vulnerable to this. Many of us have experienced some things in our life as kids that caused us to experience what Paul mentioned in Ephesians 4. We gave a place to the devil. Or we didn't do it. Somebody did it to us. We've been molested as children. We've been sexually assaulted as children. We've been physically abused as children. We have been verbally abused and torn down by parents as children. We've experienced PTSD as children. We have been bullied and called names as children. Do we think that the enemy is not going to use those situations to slither in? Paul says, be angry and do not sin, because if you hold on to your sin of anger, you'll open up a door to the devil. Theologians, along with myself, would say it's not just a sin of anger. That's just the example that Paul used. His overall point is any sin that remains unrepentant will open up a door for demonic entry into a specific area of your life. This means that if somebody has done something to us, even as children, and we still hold on to that bitterness, that anger, that unforgiveness, that breakup that took place, that betrayal that hurt us, if we're holding on to it, what we're really doing is saying, come on in, devil. I'm going to give you entry into my space. And it often starts from childhood. Verse 22. And it is often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Look at all the symptoms. Now the spirit is making the boy harm himself. Now, earlier in the book of Mark, we had the demons that were cast out of the man who was in the tombs. What was he doing in the tombs? Cutting himself with stones. And then when those demons were cast out of them, what did those demons do to the pigs? Killed them. This tells us that there is a spirit of violence. There, there is a, a demonic force that manifests itself in physical harm to self and others. Our generation is cutting their wrists. 
and, and weird explanations as to why they're doing it. I watch a lot of news documentaries, and I, it's, whenever these type of stories come on, I just turn it off because I can't, emotionally, I don't feel like I can handle certain things happening to kids. I saw a story about like a 10-year-old kid committing suicide for no good reason. Another kid committing suicide because they were bullied. And I'm like, man, perhaps the same way this demon and the demon in Mark 5 was leading to this violent behavior that makes us want to harm ourselves, maybe that's why so many people today, adults and children, are struggling with these suicidal thoughts. Thoughts of death. Thoughts of I want to harm myself. And then we spend hours with the counselor, doped up on pills, and I'm not against medicine, but we, we, we spend all our resources there and never once come to the community of the believers and say, hey, y'all, can I, can I share something in confidence? I think I might be demonized. I'm having thoughts that I don't want here. Can somebody help me? That should be our first response. When we struggle, please don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying, look, I'm seeing a therapist on Friday. Every other Friday, I'm seeing mine. Not against it. Both and not either or. Cast him into the fire and destroy to destroy him. Verse 22 says, but if you can do anything, just look at the lack of faith. Telling Jesus. If you can do something, not if you're willing, if you can, I don't even know if you have the ability. But if you can do something, have compassion on us and help us. Look at Jesus' response. If you can, it's like he was taken aback by that. He like, do you know who you talking to right now? If you can, do you know what I've been doing for the last year to these demons? Like, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Notice how he took the responsibility off him and put it on the man who lacks faith. Now we're getting into some solutions to our bondages. Jesus says, you got a demon problem. And you feel you can't have victory over this. He says all things are possible if faith is present. Faith in what? Faith in Jesus is who he said he is. You got to know him. You can't be an unbeliever and cast a demon out of somebody. Number two, believe in the power of the kingdom. That God has given his sheep kingdom authority over demonic forces. And that God is not only able, but that he is unanimously willing to give us authority and free us from bondage. All things are possible for the one who believes. Verse 24. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe. But there's still some unbelief there that I need help with. That's one of the most honest statements in Scripture. 
I do believe now. Okay, Jesus, you just checked me. I believe you. But this bit of unbelief that's still there, I need you to help me with that. This shows us that faith and a lack of faith can coexist. (laughs) You can have some faith, but not be full of faith. Right? You can have a lot of faith and still have a couple little doubts. The goal in sanctification is for us to be full of faith. Where our trust and our hope is in the Lord, no matter the circumstance. But this man wasn't there yet. But the encouraging part is he didn't have to be to see victory. Verse 25. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him. And never enter him again. That man's faith was enough to see victory, right? Jesus says, okay, I could work with that faith. He rebukes the unclean spirit. But then it's the command that throws me off. Come out of him and don't come back. Why would Jesus say that unless it was possible to have victory on Monday and be right back to failure on Friday? He says you can walk in authority, do everything you're supposed to do and be free from bondage one minute. But if you go back and open up the door that got you in that situation in the first place, you're going to be right back in the same pit that we were once delivered from. Now, in the book of Luke, Jesus tells a parable about demons. He says that when a demon goes out of a man, it, it, it looks for waterless places seeking to find rest. And when it doesn't find any, it comes back to the house from which it came. And it says it brings seven more other spirits more vile than itself. And the last state of that man will be worse than the first. The dangerous part of being freed from bondage and then going back. Is that there's a possibility that you might end up worse in your bondage than you were the first time God freed you. This is why we don't want to play games with it. This is why Paul says, don't give an opportunity or a place to the devil. A couple more points, then we're done. Verse 26. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, It came out and the boy was like a corpse, so much so that most of them said, he is dead. Before the demon was cast out, the spirit sees Jesus and does what? Acts out, convulses, foams, grinds his teeth. After Jesus (laughs) cast out the demon and commands the spirit to leave, the same symptoms manifest itself. Now, on the one hand, it's like, well, then what's the point then? If I'm going to be miserable with the thing oppressing me, and then when Jesus commands it to go, I get the same symptoms, what's the point? Here's what I took from this. Just because Jesus had authority over the demonic forces and commanded them to leave doesn't mean that he required them to leave quietly. It says, after crying out and convulsing him severely, terribly, it came out 
and left the boy in a condition where they thought he was dead. This shows us that the process of deliverance can be a painful one. Not always a cakewalk. It's like when the demon knew that their time was up, they gave it one more shot on their way out. <laughs> it's like we spanked them one more time before I leave this house. <laughs> I believe that could happen to us. We finally get victory over a period of resisting, waging war against the spiritual realm. Don't be surprised if on that way out, one more, one, more, one more sink thrown at you. Verse 27, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Throughout the whole narrative, Jesus has only given two solutions to the problem. Faith and prayer. It doesn't mean that there's no other tools. It just means that this situation, those were the main things needed. When it says this kind cannot only, can only be driven out by prayer, People debate over what that means. It could be that the disciples, although they were given authority in Mark chapter 6, began to be convinced that they were doing things in their own power. And they were no longer dependent on God in their quiet time for prayer and, and consecration and being set apart. So when they got approached by a spirit, they didn't know what to do. They, they had lost their, their power to actually be successful. Others would say, well, the whole point is that there are certain demons that needs certain levels of consecration to deal with. And that may be the case. But at the end of the day, here's the thing. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, put on the whole armor of God. When you read that passage, he doesn't just say take up the sword of the spirit. He doesn't just say take on the shield of faith. If you read the last part after he's done talking about the armor, he says praying at all times. This means that that is a universal solution to, to victory. Paul put it this way, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through the tearing down of strongholds. There's a sense that there's a power that comes from prayer because you are appealing to the Most High God. And he promises to hear those who belong to him. So what do we have to do? Because we talked about a lot, man. We talked about childhood traumas. That stuff is real. We talked about opening up doors. We talked about spirits taking up residency in our bodies and causing illnesses that can't be explained. We talked about our children. Notice in Mark 9, in verse... 22 says, and it is often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us. Help us. That's the father talking. The father's not being demonized. His son is. What does this tell us? That we're affected when our children are going up under attack. 
You may have kids here and you're feeling the pain. You're feeling the pressure because your son, your daughter is being demonized and they may not even know it. This stuff is heavy, man. I believe we got solutions. Here's what the, what the, what the word of God says we need to do. In addition to prayer, in addition to faith, in addition to staying in the word, James 4 and 7 says this. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. 1 Peter 5, 7 through 8 says, cast your anxieties on him for he cares for you. For the devil walketh around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same sufferings you are experiencing are being experienced in your brethren throughout the world. Resisting is the ultimate key. Not just laying down, I'm always be this way. I'm under attack. And we just, just leave ourselves defenseless like we lost. Remember what Mark explained earlier. Wait a minute. We, we have not lost. We do have authority. We have a command, not a suggestion. We have a command to resist him. And yes, in some cases, there is going to be a need of laying on of hands. Don't allow false teachers, cults, abuse, extremes to discourage you from doing what the Bible clearly prescribed. Jesus laid hands on people. The disciples laid hands on people. We're not just talking about the 12. Read the book of Acts. The early church who were not apostles laid hands on people. I'm reading a book on spiritual warfare right now, and it is documented that in the first 300 years of the church, this is the generation after the New Testament was written, all of them practiced deliverance in the Christian congregation through the laying on of hands. They said they would do it before baptism took place. And demons would manifest themselves in believers. We assume that demons leave automatically when we get saved. If that was true, why didn't Jesus just preach the gospel and never cast demons out of people? If they come out automatically, why ever cast them out? Just preach the kingdom, they'll leave on their own. They don't. Don't get caught up in, oh, does a demon live inside of me? Totally irrelevant. Paul says, don't give them space. Just picture it as something hovering over the back of your head, a dark cloud that's following you wherever you go. God wants to give us victory, y'all. And I believe over the next, I don't know, season we're in, you're probably going to hear me talking about it more. We're about to start our prayer series. And we're going to be honest with each other in these prayers. All this, how you doing today? I'm fine. Can we stop that? Let's start telling each other the truth so that we can start experiencing some victory. Let's stand to our feet. Lord Jesus, 
The message was heavy. The content was hard to hear. The subject matter is tough. But Lord, I believe it's true. Demons are real. Evil spirits are real. We can open up doors as believers. And they can take up residency in an area of our life. Lord, you said resist them. Cast them away. Drive them out. Stand firm. Pray over it. Flee from temptation. None of those things are possible unless we yield to the authority that you gave us upon the profession of our faith. Help us to do that, Lord God. Father, I pray for these kids who are here, not just my own, but the infants, the toddlers, those that are in grade school, the teenagers, the preteens. God, I'm asking on their behalf that you would give their parents insight into what's really going on with their kids. For every parent in this room who has a child, no matter what age, God, I'm asking that even now you will begin to speak through images, through promptings of the Holy Spirit. Just, I just pray for a sense of clarity, Lord God, that you will begin to reveal to the parents in this room if their children are struggling with trauma, being triggered by demons, have fallen under the control of a demonic force. God, I pray that you will make it clear to every mother, father, guardian, whoever it is. And that once you make it clear what's going on, if things are the result of demonic entities, Father, I pray that you would allow the authority of Christ to rise up in every parent in whom your Holy Spirit dwells and that they would wage war against the kingdom of darkness without fear of a demon manifesting itself, without fear of being overtaken by an evil spirit, but with full faith, full faith and confidence that you promised to give us victory over the enemy. God, would you free these children? If there's any child in this room, Lord God, you know, I don't know, but you know. If they have been demonized, free them today, Lord God. If they are having nightmares, if they are filled with lust, anger, lying, deceit, anxiety, depression, all these symptoms that may be the result of a demon, God, I'm asking for supernatural breakthrough. Lord, I pray that none of us will be discouraged with the process, but that we will wait on you to do what you promised to do in your word. God, I pray for those who may have 
hypersensitivity towards sexual activity. They may have been violated, exposed to something at a young age that they should not have been exposed to, touched in a way that they were not supposed to be touched. God, I am praying right now that you would deliver them from Satan's grip, that you would reveal to them that it is not their fault and that you love them and that they are accepted in your sight and that they are not dirty, but that you have forgiven them, wiped all their sins clean, and that they are accepted in your sight no matter what they've experienced in this life. All forms of bondage and evil. Those who may have illness due to an evil spirit, God, I pray for divine healing. I pray for full restoration of health. I pray for long life. I pray against the fear and panic that your people may be experiencing. Freedom from that dark cloud of evil that comes from Satan. We resist you, Satan. We resist you. You are defeated. And we resist your lies. And we thank you, Lord God, that you have given us the victory in Christ Jesus. Let this be a day of a new journey as we pursue you for absolute liberty. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Can we worship the Lord? Hallelujah. Hallelujah.